Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for listening to The Next Track. Before I forget, I got a note here. If you have a moment, go to our website and take a very brief listener survey. We're trying to get some info on what our listeners, what you are interested in, what you like, what you don't like. It's a very short survey, a minute or two of your time tops, and that's online at thenexttrack.com slash survey. Thank you very much. This is episode number 51 of The Next Track. Today, we're welcoming back our good friend, Andy Doe. Andy. Thanks for having me on the show again. A number of listeners have written in with topic ideas, and one of the ideas is, is actually this controversial question that comes up a lot in audio. It's which sounds better, vinyl or CD? And we thought we'd ask Andy to come back on the show for another Ask Andy episode to ask the question and to have a discussion about the difference between CD and vinyl. Uh, just one thing, when I say CD here, and when we talk about CD in the show, it's digital in general. It could be a digital download as well as a CD. So not specific to those little plastic discs. So vinyl versus CD, where does one begin? Well... Whatever we do, we're going to get hate mail on this subject. <laughs> we're willing to take the risk. What we have here is the split between all analog recording and the digital storage and playback medium that is CD. And when CDs first came out, they were hailed as the most accurate, the most, uh, the, the most high-fidelity sound you could, you could possibly get. And almost immediately, there was this, this backlash from people who loved their LPs who said that CD lacked the the warmth, the directness, the clarity of sound. And interestingly, this is a thing that happened when LPs were introduced. People said that it lacked the vibrancy of, of shellac. And to some extent, when uh, shellac came along, people said that it really lacked the uh, the the realness of the cylinder recording. So so it's it's not a new idea. And cylinder recordings lack the spontaneity of wire recordings, too. Absolutely. And, and all of these things lack the bass response of a good player piano or of hiring a group of musicians to come and sit in your house and perform a cover of whatever it is you wanted to hear, which is, after all, the, you know, the, the, the way it was done in Mozart and Haydn's day. I can definitely remember the first CDs I bought, and I don't think I expected that they would sound better than LPs, although I probably tried to convince myself that they did. But I was just glad that they wouldn't wear out like my LPs did. That was the benefit as far as I was concerned. Isn't it true, however, that in the early days of CD, some CDs did sound poor, but the reason for this was because mastering engineers were using masters they created for LPs and not specifically mastering their recordings for CD. So this is a thing that, that comes up frequently when... Uh, one recording is released on, on multiple formats. It's also an issue that occurs with CD and SACD recordings. And to some extent, tape and CD. What happens is when you're finishing off a recording to be turned into a, a vinyl disc, you have to do things to the sound to make it reproduce well on vinyl, to make it survive the limitations of of that format. The same to some extent with tape to a lesser extent with cd and super audio cd but when you're when you're preparing something for for cutting to, to vinyl one of the things you have to do is you have to make sure that the the bass is is in phase or in, in mono because otherwise the uh, the bumps in the groove can cause the needle to jump out and if you've if you've done this 
to the master and then you try and turn it into a CD, then you're going to have a kind of odd bass response. Uh, there are other things that you do to the high frequencies to prevent them from either damaging the cutting machine or from causing distortion. And again, this is not something you need to do to a CD master. And so if you, if you try and make a CD from a vinyl master, then you're going to kind of combine the limitations of both formats. And it was a flaw in early CDs that they were made from vinyl masters. In the same way, it's now something we see going in the other direction where there's now this, this booming vinyl market. A lot of things that were recorded originally for CD and digital download are being hurriedly pressed to vinyl without really being correctly prepared. And and the flaws in that mastering process shine through in in quite shoddy vinyl pressings. So mastering in this case is, is more of an equalization than anything else. I'll link in the show notes to a, an episode we did with a mastering engineer named Sonny Nam, who explained in the episode some of the different things he did for vinyl and CD. And just as an aside, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And Neil Young actually said a year or two ago how bad many vinyl releases sounded because they were using CD masters. That's right. And it can be really unfair to compare a CD and a vinyl prepared from the same master and, and judge the formats on the basis of these recordings. A similar thing happens when you're trying to compare Super Audio CD and CD. Quite often they will have been produced from different masters and they'll have different degrees of processing applied to them. They'll have different, uh, subtly different mixes. And quite often the two-channel SACD mix will be some mix down of the surround mix, which is substantially different to the stereo mix that made its way onto the CD. So it can be a confounding variable when you're trying to compare the, the two formats. And as a result, it's, it's important that, that you look at in aggregate, a large number of vinyl releases and a large number of CDs to, to compare what these things really sound like. One of the things you pointed out was the bass response has to be changed on the, the vinyl LP to avoid having the needle bounce around too much. This uses something called the RIAA curve, which is an equalization curve. And one thing that people need to know if they are hooking up a turntable to a stereo today is that they need what's called a phono stage. A phono stage is basically a sort of a reverse filter that turns the RIA curve back in the other direction to recompensate for the, the reduced bass. You'll get that in a lot of amplifiers, maybe not all amplifiers anymore. You can also buy an external phono stage that you plug your turntable in before it gets to the amplifier. But if you happen to buy a turntable today and plug it into an amplifier and you don't have a phono stage, the sound will definitely not sound correct. That's absolutely right. Uh, it's also worth uh, bearing in mind that many kind of middle market turntables these days do have a built-in phono stage, and so uh, they'll output line level. What what happens with a turntable is typically the the cables coming out of it are, are wired straight into the cartridge, and there's a very very quiet signal comes out of there. And uh, as you say, in order to prevent the needle from jumping around, the bass has been made much quieter when you play it back you need to make the bass louder again this does make the 
sound from your turntable very susceptible to rumbling sounds in the room sensitive to vibrations but it's an important part of getting the best sound out of your turntable is it is that the same thing as what we used to refer to as a phono preamp yes that's right the preamp or the phono stage uh turns that very very quiet signal with not enough bass into a line level signal like you might get out of a cd player and with the frequency response restored to something that's much more like the original recording it it seems to me that all receivers would come with a separate phono input and i presume that that input always had the correct circuitry for just the turntable cartridge and nowadays you don't even see a phonograph input on on a lot of receivers that's right that's exactly why the phono input was was specific to a record player if you plugged a tape recorder into that then what came out would be way too loud and way too basic a lot of people when they discuss the differences between vinyl and cd get really technical and try to point out all of these objective measurable reasons why one sounds better than the other let's talk about frequency range for instance many people say that the frequency range of vinyl is superior to that of cd or digital And again, we're sticking with CD. We're not into high-resolution files, which can have a higher frequency range. But this really isn't true, is it? Because in the first place, the frequency range drops off on vinyl very quickly. In the second place, frequency range depends on how something was recorded, whether the microphones could even go to a higher frequency. That's right. There are a lot of limiting factors on frequency range. And in the case of vinyl recording, the absolute ceiling is the smallest wiggle you can make in the groove and still fit the end of the needle through it, the end of the stylus through it. And that depends on how fast the stylus is moving through the groove. And uh, that, in turn, is about double the speed on the outside of the record as it is on the inside of the record because the record is, is round. And that's not a thing that happens with the CD because... On a CD, the bits are read off the track at the same rate from the inside to the to the outside. On a, on a record, you have the, the equivalent effect of it slowing down as you get to the middle. Yes, you can see this when you're ripping a CD in iTunes or any other app, that when you start ripping a CD, the speed that's shown, like 5x or 8x, gradually increases as you get to the end. So I have a 24x drive, and when I start a CD it's around five, six, eight X. And by the end, it's about 20 or 22 X. And this is because it's spinning at the same speed, but it's reading more data for each revolution. So on, on the CD, this doesn't affect sound in any way, but on a record, on an LP, I believe if you look at the outside of an LP, it's about 510 millimeters per second. And if you look at the inside, it's about 200 when you get to the very end of the side. Now, this is similar to, let's say, if you're using a 15-inch per second tape and slowing it down to 7.5-inch, you get less resolution. I remember there was a documentary about the Grateful Dead. Obviously, I'm bringing in a Grateful Dead reference here. I don't, I don't know how you do it. You've got a Grateful Dead anecdote for every occasion. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> they were talking about when they were recording American Beauty, and they were talking about how they were arguing about whose songs get to go early on the side and whose songs get to go later. And, and in fact, in the liner notes that Bob Dylan wrote for his latest album, Triplicate, he mentioned that he kept each album to 32 minutes because that for him was the ideal 16 minutes per side was the ideal 
amount of time that you could have on an LP without it getting into that much slower and, and lower quality sound. That's right. And it's, it's a thing, it's very audible. Once you've noticed it, it's a very, very audible effect that the high frequency response deteriorates over the, over the course of the side of an LP. And, and so while it may be true that you have an extremely good frequency response at the very beginning of one side of the record, when the record is brand new and the good, good quality record player has been set up really well. And the cartridge with exactly the right RPM. Yeah, uh, running at exactly the right speed. And no, no variation to make it go slower and faster as it goes along. <laughs> so if, if you get everything right, then you can get a fairly good frequency response out of a turntable. But... Overall, there is no comparison. It's absolutely not accurate to say that over the course of a a record under any normal circumstances that you can get superior frequency response from an LP over a compact disc. So one of the big problems with vinyl is the medium itself, that it's fragile, that, as you say, you need a, a brand new record to get the best quality response. And, and it... To, to be fair, if you do have a good needle, a good cartridge, a good turntable, a new record, maybe if you're very careful, you can play it 10 or 15 or 20 times before there's any wear, before you skip it and all that. But there are an awful lot of limitations to vinyl. And, and I still have a 12-inch single of Joy Division's song, Atmosphere. And this is a really interesting record because the song has a sort of a droning synth thing going on, right? But the whole's not centered, so the synth goes, which to me makes this song sound really, really cool. It's funny, isn't it, that the uh, that if you heard a piece of music, particularly with with pop and rock, but if you heard a piece of music first on vinyl, you you come to think of those artifacts as being part of the music, and when that's the case, you you don't think of them as artifacts as problems it it becomes part of what you expect to hear and you you accept them completely well you get used to them yeah they become part of the song it's almost like the skips and pops are part of the percussion section <laughs> you know back in the day i remember you know pink floyd's dark side of the moon which is often used as an example for everything in music it starts out with that heartbeat that comes in really really slowly and Find me one person who doesn't have an LP of that that doesn't have click after click after click before you get to the actual music. And you hear it as it fades in, ba-boom, ba-boom, and all these clicks go on behind it. You just can't avoid it. Right. And, and when, you, when you look at older recordings, you, you accept this even more. You know, we, we expect a, we accept a certain amount of noise on a jazz record. On my collection of 1920s shellac dance records, that I play on my wind-up gramophone. I, I do have a wind-up gramophone, and if I were to, and I've got a cartridge for my for my proper turntable that that will play these records, but it somehow just feels like cheating. It feels it, it feels anachronistic to to listen to these ancient bits of chillac on something so sophisticated, and and so you know we we come to accept this as part of the process, part of the sound world, part of the experience of of listening to it and and the the flaws of the format become a, a part of its charm and a part of the theater of putting it on yeah i'm just thinking of old movies when you see them in the movie theater um the grain of film to me is more attractive than the cleanness of 4k video but would you listen to a radio station that only played older recordings with pops and skips and scratches and the reason i ask is because 
when I used to sling vinyl, we would be replacing records frequently. I'm pretty sure the whole vinyl library turned over about once a year because, you know, tracks get cue burns and scratches. Despite being handled by so-called professional record handlers, records wear out and you can't fight friction. Yeah, well, when you're, when you're listening to it on the radio, it's... It's, it's a magic sound that's coming out of the box and you, you don't want to think about the room in which somebody is playing the disc and putting a, a needle on the vinyl. And it would be a bad thing for there to be skips and hops and jumps and scratches. But those those artifacts are a little less problematical in the, in the home environment. And so it's easy to see why broadcasters have largely stuck with digital formats, even as vinyl playback has seen a, something of a resurgence in the, in, in the marketplace. So why is there a resurgence in the marketplace? Is it because of the sound quality or is it because of something else? Aside from sound quality, there are a lot of other things to really like about vinyl. When you talk about vinyl with vinyl enthusiasts, they'll talk about the artwork, the experience of leafing through their collection, the, the way in which you put on a record and you listen to it all the way through you're not trapped into the whim of somebody else's playlisting in the way that you can be when you listen to a streaming service it's a different and more considered experience it's it's like musical slow food and there's a time and a place for that that time and that place is is not on the bus on the way to work where a turntable would be extremely impractical but if you want to sit down and actively listen to music it can be a very nice way to do it you can display your collection you can you can touch it you can feel it you can lend it to people you can you can wear it out and know you wore it out that's how many times you listen to it i'm going to tell a story that i think i've already told on the show my dentist a few months ago after i went for a checkup he went into the back room behind his treatment room and he came out with a with a big plastic bag and he said you know what i have here and he had a twinkle in his eye and I said, no, with a twinkle in my eye. And he pulled out a vinyl record. It was Carlos Kleiber's recording of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony on Deutsche Grammophon. And his wife had bought him a turntable and he bought a couple of records. And he said to me, it's just so interesting. I got a few friends over and a bottle of single malt whiskey. And we sat down and we listened to it. And he was enjoying the process. He was enjoying turning listening to a record into an event. Right, and, and no one's going to do that with a track on Spotify. You're not going to get a bunch of guys around and <laughs> open a bottle of good whiskey and <laughs> bust out a playlist on your favourite streaming service. Like that, that, is, that is not a thing that anyone's going to do. And, and it, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be much of an event. But with analogue formats, the kind of more inconvenient they are, the more of an event it feels like you're having when you when you play it back. The the less convenient and practical it is to hop around or for someone to butt in and say, hey, I know we've only listened to 40 seconds of this, but you should totally check this out because it's too difficult to do that. And if you want to step that up a notch, then why stop at vinyl? Why not get a reel-to-reel tape machine where the, the experience is even more inconvenient, even more theatrical. You have to thread this thing up, and quite often, depending on how you store it, you have to rewind the entire tape before you can play any of it. And you can't take it off the tape machine halfway through at all. You have to wind it all the way back onto the spool it was on. And it's super inconvenient and super difficult to use and difficult to set up and hard to maintain. And potentially dangerous. I used to edit 
reel-to-reel tapes with razor blades, and I can't tell you how many times I've sliced tips of my fingers. Yeah, and... yeah, you can hurt yourself with yeah. one of these things, and that makes it all the more fun. Thrilling. <laughs> but but can you actually buy pre-recorded reel-to-reel tapes anymore? I, I don't even think you could buy very many reel-to-reel tapes with recordings on them, even in the heyday of tapes. A lot of jazz and classical was released on reels, but nowadays, to the extent... Anyone uses reel-to-reel. I think it's more like you trade tapes, like a club or an exchange sort of thing. There there was a service called the Tape Project relatively recently was selling very high-quality quarter-inch half-track, two-track, which is like double the resolution of a a home four-track tape recorder. It goes in one direction. You don't turn it over. Yeah, so it only goes in one direction. There's no side B, and the two speed options are kind of double the speed of a, a home deck. And it produces really, really magnificent sound quality. And there was a company, The Tape Project, was selling copies of master tapes for kind of big releases this way. Uh, they were expensive. Um, I've several times explored this with clients of mine where we've looked at doing a kind of collector's edition of effectively the master tape that you can take home. Uh, and you do sometimes see masters come up for sale. Uh, if you if you keep your eyes open on eBay, you'll you'll find things which are not even a copy of the master. They are the original the original master tapes for things. You don't get the rights to reproduce it, but you do get this first generation copy from which the vinyl master would have been made and. And sold to the public, so so it is possible to obtain extremely high quality recordings on on tape, but it is an order of magnitude more difficult to obtain and more fiddly to use than than vinyl. But it does sound good, no clicks and pops. So to sum up, is it fair to say that a CD or digital is more accurate, more precise, better fidelity, but vinyl offers an event-based approach to listening? that can make it seem like something sounds better because all of our listening is truly subjective. And that if you're in a better environment, if you're more comfortable, anything you listen to is going to sound better. And if vinyl makes you feel more comfortable and if it's more enjoyable, then it will sound better. But it's just not a measurable better sound, is it? Absolutely. People are extremely bad at making objective judgments about music that they're listening to. They tend to discount the information they're getting from other cues and their experience of what they're hearing is very heavily colored by what they expect to hear and what they're seeing and how they're feeling at that time. There have been a number of studies done on this, uh, a relatively famous one a few years ago, in which uh, classical musicians were judged on in auditions based on uh, are wearing different clothes and in fact what what you were hearing was exactly the same audio but what you were seeing was people wearing outfits of differing degrees of inappropriateness and and of course people heard differences in the in the performances depending on what people were wearing and and you know if the outfit that a person is wearing on the screen can affect what you think you're hearing then of course what you think the format is or what your experience of setting up the, the, the format is going to have a large impact on your interpretation of what it sounds like. And that difference 
is frequently much bigger than the difference caused by the actual fidelity of that medium. You might think I'm crazy for saying this, but I frequently find that any music I'm listening to sounds better with the lights out, that is, in a room in complete darkness. Now, I don't know if it's a real effect, you know, some kind of switch in my brain that kicks in when one sense is deprived of stimulus, but I, I, I definitely experience it. Well, you know that light absorbs high-frequency waves, so oh. it's obviously well. something to do with that. <laughs> of course. Uh, that's it. So that's why in your listening room you have to have specific wavelengths of light to get the best sound out of your, out of your stereo. Of course. I had completely forgotten that the sound waves are bumping up against the light waves yes. and uh, causing all kinds of uh, upper harmonic distortion and that sort of thing. Absolutely. I, I, I think we need to go into business selling safe lights. <laughs> <laughs> hi-fi safe lights for listening rooms. This is a gold hi-fi safe light. But, but it's true. That co context does matter. And, and Andy, it's interesting you mentioned about classical musicians and, and what they're wearing because what was it in the 70s or the 80s that they started doing classical auditions behind screens because they realized not enough women were getting hired in orchestras. And when they made it impossible for the people judging these musicians to see the sex of the performers, many more women got hired. Right. So even if this was just an implicit subconscious bias against women, adding that screen eliminated that bias entirely. Right. And this is, this is a group of professionals who were hired to make good judgments about who was a good performer and, and who was not. People who believed that they were doing exactly that. And yet the, uh, the number of women making it through to the next round of auditions once the screen was introduced um i believe more than doubled there's a there's a classic paper on this a study was done we'll put it in the show notes it is an excellent piece of research that gives that puts some some really valuable numbers on on the extent to which people's judgments were were flawed assuming and we're being charitable here that there was no overt sexism going on and it was purely a subconscious thing it's entirely possible there was an element of deliberate behavior there it's interesting i have a bunch of dvds of leonard bernstein conducting the vienna misogynist orchestra from back in the 1970s it's it's surprising it's not a single woman even i don't even think the harpist is a woman in those videos that's right and the situation is barely improved in the intervening years. But. For that orchestra, yeah. But for a lot, yes. it, it has changed. So w would it be fair to sum up to say that there's no, there shouldn't be this big debate between vinyl and CD? People should stop looking, trying to come up with measurements to say that vinyl is better than CD and just accept that they like it, listen to the music, and stop arguing. Well, there does seem to be an awful lot of ink and internet ire wasted on trying to come up with plausible mechanisms by which vinyl would somehow be a, a, a superior format for the high fidelity reproduction of, of sound when it seems to me that this is this is entirely irrelevant if you want to listen to vinyl then listen to vinyl there, there are lots of advantages to it it's possible to get a massive repertoire really really cheaply it's fun it's nice to have you can make your house smell funny by buying lots of moldy cardboard sleeves and you get to you get to fiddle with the with the playback device and with setting it up and and, and it's a really tactile thing and you can get in touch with your music collection you can you can curate this thing all sorts of reasons to to like it 
and, and all sorts of reasons to like other bizarre esoteric formats that, that all have their own strengths, weaknesses and, and quirks. But I think it, it, is a, it is a fool's errand to go looking for a, a scientific justification for how this is a more accurate format because it is simply not. Thanks very much, Andy. It's great to have you again. It's been a pleasure. Before we get to our next tracks, I want to remind you one more time about our listener survey that is uh, available right now at thenexttrack.com slash survey. Won't take you very long to fill out, and it would be very helpful for us. Thank you very much. Now, Kirk, what do you got lined up to listen to? So for my next track this week, I thought it would be appropriate to pick a record that I listened to an awful lot on vinyl back in the day. And I'm going to go back to what was probably the first album that I bought. I'm not 100% sure, but it was definitely among the first. It was the first recording by Chicago Transit Authority, just called Chicago Transit Authority, before they added all those numbers to all their albums. Definitely not very creative with album titles, this band. I probably bought this because of the hits. Does anybody really know what time it is? Is the big hit from the first album. And... I really, really got into this music. And, and I think one reason I liked it was that it was, some of the music was pop music, and that was a very poppy song that was on the radio all the time. But some of these tracks were a lot longer, had improvisation, and sounded very strange. There's one called Freeform Guitar, which is just sort of guitar feedback, which comes out of nowhere. It's also got I'm a Man, great song at 7 minutes 41. So this was a band that was doing things that were a bit out of the ordinary. It's a double album, like the first three Chicago albums, which, you know, for a, a band's first album to release a double LP was also surprising. I listen to these first three albums every now and then. I like this music. I like the, the way that they had a sound that was unique with their jazzy brass sessions and the sort of rocky guitar. Don't really care for the music after that when they turned a lot poppier, but I still have a place in my heart for these early albums that I listened to on that cheap Radio Shack stereo system with the, you know, the kind with the turntable just on top of the amplifier there. So it's Chicago Transit Authority's first album, just called Chicago Transit Authority. What about you, Doug? What's your pick this week? I've picked an album that I actually never owned on vinyl, but I kind of wish I had. It's the Kinks' Muswell Hillbillies from late 1971. And speaking of skips and pops at the start of an album, Muswell Hillbillies begins with the quiet opening of the first track, 20th Century Man, and you can almost anticipate vinyl distress. And they could have even added vinyl noise like on XTC's Respectable Street. You know how that begins? But anyway, anyway, this is, um, this is Ray Davis at one of his songwriting peaks. The songs are laced with his usual working class Victorian nostalgia, his signature clever lyrics and instrumentation that borrows heavily from American roots music, country rock, and English music hall. Surprisingly, despite the catchiness of some of these songs, the album did not fare very well on its release, and for a long time, the vinyl version was out of print, and it wasn't until it was reissued on CD in the early 21st century that it started getting some respect again. Alcohol, Skin and Bone, Have a Cup of Tea, Acute Schizophrenia, Paranoia Blues, Here Come the People in Grey, these are, are really great kink songs. This was their first album for RCA, and their deal enabled them to eventually build their own studio and begin their mid-70s theatrical period, which I'm not really a big fan of. Muswell Hillbillies isn't quite a concept album or mini-opera like a lot of that stuff is, but there is a general theme of despair and disappointment expressed with joy and hopefulness. 
Ray Davis sure knows how to make irony work, right? The Kinks, Muswell Hillbillies is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.